Hello, and welcome to Supply Chain Next. I'm your host, Richard Donaldson. Join me as we explore the ongoing evolution of supply chain, from the challenges practitioners face every day to the ongoing digital transformation of the entire value network. Welcome to the next episode of Supply Chain Next, and I'm super pumped to wind up the year uh, with now a friend and colleague, David Crawley from the University of Houston. Hey, David. Hey, Richard. Uh, uh, you know, going to dive right in, um, Dave. And, uh, you know, we, we chatted last week as, you know, as I do with a lot of people. And I, I mean, I'm just going to start off right off the bat. You've got such an interesting background in history and just stories. And I, I just want to start with just an introduction in your own words of who you are and kind of what you're doing. And then I'm really going to get into kind of where, where you came from and how you got to where you are today. <laughs> well, Thank you, Richard. Um, it's a pleasure to be of service to you and uh, your audience. Um, uh, I can describe myself as um, in one sentence, uh, uh, right? Uh, so I'm a man of purpose and compassion who believes in the integrity of great work. And my purpose is that I'm a catalyst for something greater than today. Okay. That's that awesome. I mean, I, oh, I love that short, succinct, and uh, uh, pithy, <laughs> as we might call that, uh, concise and, 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 and economy of language. Uh, uh, but now, I'm going to say, though, that type of insight and clarity didn't happen just this morning. That came through years of development experiences, and you didn't have a, I'm going to say, a traditional path to where you are today, or maybe it's just a unique path. Um, so I'd love to walk all the way back to kind of how you got into sort of this consumer marketing branding, how you ended up in Moscow of all places. Uh, let's, let's talk about that for a little bit because you, you uh, were all over the place. Yeah. I've been fortunate to stumble forward uh, throughout my life uh, <laughs> conventionally. Um, and uh, I think in many instances, you know, I've been blessed uh, beyond my imagination. Mm -hmm. It, it uh, originates from the beginnings of my life, really, in my perspective. I was homeless as a teenager, broken home, that kind of thing. I uh, realized that the only way I was going to uh, uh, prosper and my way out of the situations of my life was to get a degree. And during that time, you know, they didn't have a lot of uh, computerized oversight to everything. And so I was able to. Uh, uh, go to the University of Kansas by walking up to the uh, admissions, uh, paying my fee and uh, getting my student ID and picking up my classes when I was in. Wow. And uh, then I just grinded it through, right? I, I worked my way through. I lived in an abandoned house uh, for uh, several years uh, in a porch room uh, with the vision of what I wanted to be the kind of person I wanted to be, uh, or the, certainly the kind of career, which at that stage was to um, become an international advertising and marketing executive. Uh, I'm dyslectic. I'm ADHD. Uh, that was undiagnosed at the time. So I really didn't start discovering that until much later. And this was roughly, Dave, sorry to interrupt, but this was roughly kind of 70s time frame. It was the 70s, so you okay. can imagine, you know, I had hair down to my shoulders. Um, <laughs> um, I'm not entirely proud of it, but I, you know, <laughs> it 
as a stoner to figure out. Hey, know, it was a different. It was a different era, man. It was the seventies and the sixties oh, and long hair and free love. And yeah, it was. It was. It was crazy, and it was a great way for me to escape my situation of having to grind it out by living on hundred and twenty-five dollars a month. Mm. It's fortunate that the abandoned house I was living in didn't charge me rent for a year and a half. So, you know, things like that. But uh, and I graduated with $150 in my pocket and I bought a one-way ticket to Dallas and I ended up sleeping on a on a friend's uh, couch until he got tired of me. Uh, mm. This was really difficult to to date girls on his part and have me there in the living room, right? So anyway, uh, fast forward, I always wanted to get involved in, in, in advertising because I love the dynamics of creativity. I love the, the aspect how creativity can be deployed as a purpose. Right. With the intent to motivate people to action. Right. And uh, every situation that you engage in, in uh, with your clients in advertising is something new that hasn't been done before. Right. And since building my life from living in a basement of people who owned a house I didn't know, taking a shower underneath the hose, everything in my life was, was, was created moving forward. Not necessarily in, in the... The best manner. I there's 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 many situations I could would would certainly change, but right, a life without regret is like a library of unread books. So well, can I can I jump in for a second, Dave? And, and I apologize. Yeah. I think it's so fascinating, but you know, of of, of I, I I hear there's a connection. I don't know if you thought about this between your pursuit of marketing and as you describe it, the ability to sort of catalyze change through maybe thought and action or words or however you kind of view that. But there's an interest. I mean, I just immediately kind of sense there's something about that choice of all things, given your background and what you came out of, right? Versus say finance or uh, I don't know, say, I mean, sales, I guess, marketing kind of a way, but uh, right. supply chain for that matter. But I mean, there's, there's, there's something about that marketing choice that seems kind of. Yeah, it, it was. Um, um, I really liked the idea of PR, but I couldn't write. Okay. I'm, I mean, I was a horrible writer. Right. But then, um, you know, I make my life writing now. You know, right. I, I, I figured it out. Actually, my mentor figured it out for me and drugged me through it, kicking and screaming, with okay. the enthusiasm to learn at the same time. <laughs> the uh, yeah. uh, which which uh, so so I clawed my way into the advertising agency industry because I just wouldn't give up. Yep. You know, I mean, you know, um, um, I mean, if I gave up, then I'd prove everybody right who told me I wasn't good enough, and I got that a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, so, uh, I found a great mentor mm-hmm. and he was the, um, uh, everything I wanted to be. He was sophisticated. He had phenomenal command of language. He was a sense that he could sit there and talk to the CEO or an ambassador and yet have a, you know, a different conversation with the guy in the warehouse. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, he was, he was a phenomenal presenter and he took this kid and he had me 
about four months in, he looked at me and I'm right. I didn't graduate till I was 26. So at the age of 28, you know, he looked at me and he said, you know, it's phenomenal. I've never known anybody with such passion to succeed. But your skill sets is where somebody at the age of 22, 23 is. Mm -hmm. And so normally I'd fire you. But because of this passion, I will teach you everything I know. Because I needed somebody to emulate. Mm -hmm. And uh, he said, uh, on one condition, that you will do everything I tell you to do, no matter how hard it is for you to do it. Mm -hmm. You will promise that you will teach other people what I'm teaching you and what you will learn, and you will teach it to others unconditionally. Mm -hmm. And I did. And for the next four years, it was really nuts. I mean, I had to go to night school to learn grammar all over again at Mm -hmm. the library gave me tickets to the opera and I'd have to come back and give a presentation for 15 minutes mm. uh, um, about, you know, who I sat next to, what we did, uh, what the play was about, um, who I met in the, uh, uh, he would take me to lunch and I would have to create stories for everybody that was in the lunch, you know, mm. there, what they were talking about, who was in control, who, you know, all these things. Um, Phenomenal, um, you know, the the depth. He'd have me come up with a word a day and use it 10 times. Mm-hmm. He did that for a year and a half mm-hmm. uh, to, to force me to increase my vocabulary. And, and after four and a half, almost five years, um, you know, I, I moved on into larger advertising agencies. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Uh, you know, I just kept focusing on the things that I was taught and the fundamentals, but understanding that everything is new in your and uh, I wrote my own proposals. I wrote my own uh, ads if if needed. Uh, although we these were very large ad agencies, and I worked with Pepsi, mm-hmm. and I was in the field. Right. Being in the field, you saw the granular activities of the movement of the product on the shelf. Right. And you would develop programs with that specific intent. So it was very granular in that engagement and merchandising media to provoke um, a distribution of goods, you know, through through these channels. And there were many different channels that Pepsi's involved in. You know, people think. Pepsi's um, uh, in the job of selling soft drinks, and they're not mm-hmm. in the job of selling syrup. And the bottlers are in the job of selling soft drinks to distributors, mm-hmm. not to the end consumer. Mm-hmm. But they build with the pull strategy according. And so all of the all of the 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 um, uh, ecosystem of that had to be managed and had to be touched on and had to have a certain degree of logic um, modeling, you know, where parts are seamlessly connected. And I saw that from the field. And, uh, you know, I get in my car and I drive to a grocery store, look around, I drive to a thing, drive to a restaurant, you know, all these different venues, uh, even, even the, uh, the vending machines and where they were placed, mm-hmm. 
they competed. And then we would compete in schools. And many times we would go to schools to just bid against uh, Coca-Cola to push Coca-Cola to spend more money for that contract than they had intended, which mm-hmm. didn't give us money to spend on the schools that we really wanted to get into. Mm-hmm. We, we burned up Coke's budget and things like that. And so um, you do, you do really great work on little things mm-hmm. or perform and mm-hmm. you, and you're given opportunities to do bigger things. And so that was one of the, one of the dynamics that I was taught and I just kept deploying it. I probably put in 12 hours a day, six days a week, just right. But, but, but you do. And one of the things that, that was uh, evident during that time is that uh, you can taste great work. Mm-hmm. It tastes like metal. Right. Because you have to work twice as hard for that last mile of the development of your idea. Because, you know, advertising is all about ideas and the execution thereof. And you can get something done that's good enough. But nobody really pays money for good enough with the value of what it is. And opportunities generally don't come to those that just do good enough things. Right. So you put in that you know, that extra bit because it's what you know where you want to go, mm-hmm. where you're at. And so eventually that led to me being, um, uh, we, I came to Houston. Uh, I, I, I maintained my relationship with Pepsi and uh, I developed programs in sports marketing, um, cross, cross-referencing with Pizza Hut, Taco Bell, and the other properties of uh, PepsiCo. And Frito-Lay in particular. And, you know, blending these, these, these dynamics. You know, when you're doing a program with multiple entities, those are like different degrees of an equation. Three, three dimension, four dimension. Because you have to blend all their, all their requirements, the things that they want, the agenda they want. And if you're able to do that, it's like plywood, right? You have to have a cause and a purpose, and then each one of those pieces of the plywood have grains that go in different directions, but they're unified. Right. You build these programs not with, with, with any one organization overshadowing the other, but the strength of all this coming together benefits everybody anyway by circumstance. Mm-hmm. That was a key discovery of building um, these programs. And at some point, you know, I was, uh, had the opportunity uh, from people from Mexico asked me to develop promotional marketing programs for Northern Mexico out of Monterrey mm-hmm. uh, and uh, co-managed the manufacturer of Merinda soft drink, which was the number two soft drink of PepsiCo at the time for import into the Valley here in Texas. And then package design in Cyprus, uh, um, the island, and then competed, um, developed competitive adversarial marketing programs against the um, organized uh, distributors in Italy. Mm-hmm. You that any way you want. And um, <laughs> then I co- co-wrote the uh, business plan for introducing product in Austria 
And then they asked me to uh, go to Russia to launch Frito-Lay, uh, which I did. And uh, it was kind of an interesting call. I get this call and they said, would you be willing to come to Moscow? And I said, yeah. You know, I mean, you know, uh, I love it. And, and, and just to put it in context again, when you were asked to go to Moscow, this is right in the sort of mid 90s, mid to late 90s. And two years put- after the attempted coup d'etat. There we go. So that, 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 right. So you, there was quite right. a bit of uncertainty going to Moscow at that time and fractionalization and just the geopolitical environment was a, I mean, what a- To me, that was idea. normal. Oh, okay. I mean, I mean, <laughs> okay, right, I mean right. right. You know, when you live an unconventional childhood- Yes. And, and uh, you, you know, vestiges of a misspent youth, right. uh, like, uh, well, that's just the way it is. Well, for you, for you it is though. But for people listening, and I bet even your students, right? You got to kind of put a historical context here, which is, you know, I was I was in Czechoslovakia right when the Velvet Revolution happened, right? Right. And you know, watching Václav Havel come to power at that time, and then also the uh, I'll call it the um, uh, disintegration of the Cold War uh, wall, right? The Iron Curtain. Um, and, and seeing that firsthand, it's hard to explain to people today what that was like and what the people were kind of going through. And, you know, again, I got to point out here in the mid 90s, you were you were asked to go to Moscow at a time right when the Cold War was kind of on its backside, let's call it. Russia was almost in a retreating mode. This is right in the moment when well, how we know now Putin was just kind of coming out of this chaos Right to emerge as the victor amongst all those. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. Putin at the time was mayor of St. Petersburg. Yeltsin was the president who um, uh, stopped the coup d'état. Uh, right. And is the Cold War ever really over? Oh, well, right, right. That's that's a debate we can have. Um, but but uh, yeah, you know, I mean, it was it was it was the Wild West. You know, I. Um, um, kidnapping, death threats, you know, that kind of stuff was always entertaining, but that's just the way it is there. Um, um, uh, negotiating tactics, right? But the, right. the uh, so, so uh, um, uh, they gave me the offer. Uh, I, I took it because, you know, when opportunity knocks and the door is open, you really don't have a long time to ruminate on it. You either, you either are prepared for it True. Or you're committed to be prepared for it, and you step through it. Yep. You step into the unknown. Yep. Right. Yep. Um, uh, and then you you work it out. And yep. so um, I went home that night, and I said, "Honey, I uh, we were just married. Uh, we had been married for a while, and we had a one year old son. And I said, "Honey, I, uh, I I decided to go work for PepsiCo, and she said, "Oh, that's great." You know, what are you going to do? And I said, I'm going to launch free delay in Russia. She mm-hmm. said, that's fantastic. Uh, when are you going to do that? And I said, uh, on Friday, which is a day and a half from today. That didn't go over well. Uh, oh, okay. didn't go over well at all. Uh, but, right. You know, they 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 uh, wired me by clothes because it was 30 degrees below zero or 20, 20 degrees below zero and living in right. Houston. Right, I didn't have that kind of winter clothes, and uh, and I and I moved to Moscow, and okay. we would. Uh, my wife's British, so she would periodically go and visit her mother, 
with our son and and I come back, but it was it was really tough on everybody. And then I became deputy CEO of um, of uh, Y and R, world's largest advertising agency. Deputy CEO of the Moscow operations, Moscow CIS, um, uh, twelve time zones at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had developed an expertise in creating markets, okay. creating a market or um, a capitalizing, rec- rather recognizing an emerging market and capitalizing on it. So I developed an expertise in that, which is, once again, right, relate that back to a kid that was living in a 10 by 13 room right. in an abandoned house wondering what his future was going to be. You know, right. So um, I just took that, that in, you know, the, the instincts of that built on it, and uh, I... Uh, was working there. And then my wife told me that I was nuts because they wanted me to open up offices in Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Azerbaijan. And she just said, you're nuts. Uh, You have a choice to make. So I quit that and came back home (laughs) and uh, rebooted my life. Um, And uh, in the process, I got involved in startups. Okay. Uh, then became a subject matter expert in population-based computing and traveled the world with Hewlett-Packard, helping to develop markets and building business models or business solutions, um, which you could call it the cloud today and shareware and things of that nature. Um, And um, a a big part of, of that activity involved the the distribution of information across the value chain of of, um, of processes and operations, because okay. you know there's there's a unity in the operational flow that has to sync up. Yep. And so you know the value chain um, uh, uh, dynamic um, uh, is relatively the same, with various nuances, mind you. But uh, per per geo. But those nuances are traditionally unique to the culture as opposed to the fundamentals. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, everything should have a sense of, okay, these are the fundamentals, but what are the uh, influencing factors? And um, uh, so then uh, my son has learning disabilities, and mm-hmm. so my uh, wife and I decided that we would um, homeschool our son. Um, uh, he's uh, he has uh, some some significant uh, disabilities, but he has an IQ of 146. Okay. So I quit everything. I kind of worked out of the house. Um, I uh, worked with some some uh, people I knew who uh, started an intelligence company, security mm-hmm. intelligence firm, founded by Jim Bernazzani, former deputy director of the CIA for law enforcement, and retired. A special agent in charge of New Orleans, and all these guys, and so I was uh, the analyst. Okay, you know, corporate corporate intelligence mm-hmm. related back to you know how PepsiCo competed with everybody, mm-hmm. and so and creating market right. You always had to understand the players, mm-hmm. but, right? It's it's not it's it, it's not always what you know; it's what they know. Mm-hmm. And so, um, um, so I did that, and I decided to get my uh, uh, 
an advanced degree and I went to uh, Conrad Hilton College at the University of Houston and spoke to the um, uh, associate dean, uh, Dr. Boger, and he used to work for Taco Bell. I didn't know it at the time. And halfway into my discussion with him, he said, I know who you are. I know what you did. And uh, why don't you just start teaching? (laughs) And um, um, because, you know, there's there's a certain activity in these large corporations where you don't earn your way into it. Mm -hmm. Mm And so, you know, he knew. You know what it what it meant to go to Russia Mm -hmm. or any market, really. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so I created a class. It was, uh, um, um, it was uh, innovation and unconventional marketing. Interesting. Okay. And so it was a graduate level course and a bachelor level course. Uh, it was mi- it, it was a, a mix, and I brought you know, all the tech, you know, all the systems that I'd learned from Kraft Jacobs Sukard to Young and Root to other advertising agencies or corporations on how they use systems thinking to develop clarity and purpose for whatever the programs they were initiating, whether it be in communications for an ad or whether it be an initiative to open up a distribution channel. You know, they, they had a process. And there were different processes. And then I had created my own uh, as well. Um, uh, I had invented a brand creation process, uh, dragged through it uh, by my client, um, Lazur, out of Paris, because mm-hmm. they said um, all the functionality of a brand is nice. It's intellectually stimulating, but where's the soul? Right. And so... I had, uh, uh, they gave me two weeks to develop a plan or a process that would deliver the soul of a brand, which I did, mm-hmm. the account, which was multi-million dollars. You know, you're you're basically selling ideas for millions of dollars. Right. Right. You know, you sell a logo for $150,000, not mm-hmm. $50. And, you know, so anyway, um, Built on built built the class on that, and then um, a um, a uh, an assistant provost introduced me to the dean of the technology school college. He knew there, and I shared with him the evolution of innovation. Mm-hmm. Innovation has taken on the aspects of an emerging market. You know, it's developing leadership. When you start seeing associations developing around a particular topic, you know that pushes a degree of of uh, of um, awareness and unity into the subject that evolves as an actual marketplace. Uh, and then people start writing articles and things of that nature, and then it becomes then people start competing. And then when 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 other companies start competing, then they're actually creating the market. Mm-hmm. The consumer wants it or not, mm-hmm. um, and uh, 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 over time it could evolve and disappear, but generally not. Uh, uh, certainly, if the relevance is there, mm-hmm. and and innovation as a market was demonstrating principles 
of that was consistent with um, an industry. Okay. And so with that, I shared with him where it was going, what I thought it would be. You know, there's a little, there's foresight in all this because whenever you're developing something that's not here today, right? You're 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 using foresight to develop a sense of um, cognitive fluidity. You know, it's mm-hmm. things are always changing, and you have to evaluate things on the way they are changing, not by what you know. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, there's uh, cognitive crystallization is about things that you know, and do you apply it? And that. It has to be the basis, but but the fluidity part is: can you engage something new and understand it as being new? Mm-hmm. So, so, so let me let, let me jump in on that one, Dave, because I'm I'm gonna you you you've segued brilliantly into the sort of cross section of I'm gonna say your marketing background, which. I'm going to encapsulate is the desire to affect change within groups or people or systems or whatever. Exactly. And then that desire to catalyze change began to interweave itself with the concept of innovation, which by definition is change into perpetuity. Exactly. Um, And therefore you have to begin to realize that humanity has proven to resist change as an individual or as a cell or as an organism, hell yeah, I can, I can spontaneously change. I mean, that's, that's evolution. Um, but as a group, I think we've done a really awful job <laughs> of well, innovating. Well, yeah. Uh, uh, right. And it's going to be like that for a while. Right. Um, and it's human nature of survival. Yeah. You know, we, we engage with things with the sense of what we control and what we control is to engage in a way of what we know. It's yep. a process, um, and which is which is an odd contradiction, and that's the kind of thing that. And this is why I jumped in on this is because I hadn't thought about it until you started going through this. But but innovation and marketing, or really innovation at the end of the day, is is not necessarily about technology so much as it is about a way of thinking, about a way of approaching things. It's a it's, absolutely, it, and, and it's technology is just a one piece of the puzzle, or it's a means to you know it's it's one of the things. But innovation can be even how what we're discussing now, how to think, how to behave. Well, right, and um, so with the dean, right at the college, we created uh, three degrees around this approach. Mm-hmm. We have a minor degree, which is about applied innovation, which is about the skills of thinking, mm-hmm. disciplines. Then we have uh, uh, technology leadership and innovation management, which is a baccalaureate degree that you know trains people into managing technology and technology teams and solutions and orientation. Then there's a master's level, which is engineering, technology, innovation, and management. And and uh, uh, these are are the cornerstone of these this of, of these curriculums is a program called innovation engineering, and it's been around for thirty five years. Uh, Doug Hall, who's who's an absolute genius, uh, originated this mm-hmm. about twelve years ago, I guess 12, 13. 
the University of Maine collaborated with uh, Doug and they created this industry certification that's recognized accordingly as similar to Six Sigma. So mm-hmm. all students who engage in the fundamentals course, which is the introductory course, uh, have the opportunity to earn a blue belt in innovation engineering. And what we do in this program is we take that foundation, which mm-hmm. is solid, uh, that is focused on the skills of thinking in a manner that we we take the the dynamics of the of the disciplines that I've learned throughout my career and we blend those mm-hmm. uh, so so that um, uh, uh, we we really bring people forward not to create a business you know innovation is not entrepreneurism entrepreneurism is entrepreneurism right mm-hmm. starting a business. Um, and it's not uh, brainstorming, right? Mm-hmm. Brainstorming is only a piece mm-hmm. of the chain of innovation. And it's not design thinking. It's design thinking is a piece of innovation, but it's, mm-hmm. you know, the give all, right? Uh, because in, in a big part, design thinking is linear. It's a discussion of the problem or mm-hmm. the and then to to develop a solution for that particular situation, this is that's that's part of innovation, but the disciplines of thinking is completely unique in that it uses dis- design thinking as a discipline, or it uses uh, mind mapping as a discipline because it's all about stimulating your brain. Mm-hmm. How do you stimulate your brain in a manner that you can? mash other ideas together. See, innovation is an association of other ideas. Mm -hmm. So if you look at innovation, you have to be able to define it in a succinct, clear way. And we see innovation as the development and productization of something that is meaningfully unique. It's got to be meaningful to somebody, preferably to the person creating it, but it certainly has to be meaningful. But then it's got to be unique. Now, unique doesn't mean new to the world. It's great if it is. But it can be unique to the situation within which the innovator is engaged. Which, 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 I, and, and I get this, and I'm going to, there's a question I'm going to get to here in a second, which is people kind of reflexively, given the environment that we are in, the internet revolution that's still, let's be honest, is still 30 years in, we're relatively new, the information age is still kind of, we're just, just you know, innovating even how we think going from the industrial age to the internet age or information age or whatever you want to call it. But innovation, to your point, people kind of today just sort of think, oh, well, it's got to be technology or it's got to be Silicon Valley or whatever. However, Innovation, really, at the end of the day, from what I'm hearing you say, can easily be applied to things like, what's what's do we need a new concept around currency, for example, right? Like the entire predication of this sure. basket of goods and a fiat-based currency, for God's sakes, is that really the best method with which we can do exchange amongst our species? Or... Hell, I'll even throw it out there today, right now, and 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 you know, I'll put it. I'll, and I'm not even going one way or the other, but politically, are we at a point where we need to reevaluate our system, right? And I'm not suggesting there's a right way to do it, but this is part of the innovative thinking to say, 
you know, is a democracy as we know it the right best solution or is there something looking forward 50 and 100 years that as we have a multi-planetary kind of system starting to develop as humanity starts to expand you know what what do we and technology allows us to actually get to everybody is there a different way or system of kind of governing even right um well, well yeah i i get that yeah uh, should always be sensitive you know the the um uh dynamics of where the world is going is something we've never experienced before. And we're, we're bumping up against what's called future shock. Right, 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 right. I remember the book. I remember the book. Yeah. And uh, Alvin, Alvin Poplar or whatever, wasn't it? Wasn't it? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we experienced that in the 60s. Yeah. And uh, we're stumbling all over 4.0. Yeah, right. I mean, we really are. Um, yeah. And and the World Economic Forum said that pointed out that the number one concern of businesses is the lack of innovation skills. And um, uh, in the GE Bar- Innovation Barometer research, they pointed out that executives around the world said their biggest their biggest impediment to competitive ability is the lack of innovation skills in the workforce. And, and I'm sorry, let me be real let me be real clear when you say that innovation yeah. skills what specifically does that mean? What is the problem solving and leadership? Okay, got it. And and um, be, because we're addressing the issues that we've always known. Right. And um, um, and and so if you take that dynamic and also in the energy industry it's reported around that there's 28% skills gap in innovation. In Europe, it's around 32, 34. Um, and then you have roughly 28% of the workforce is going to retire in the next five years, mm-hmm. just for Industry 5.0. Mm-hmm. And you have the dynamic aspect of, of Workforce skills degrade by 50% over six years if they're not currently and constantly in engagement. And mm-hmm. if you have if you have this setup where you have a lack of innovation skills, mm-hmm. the disciplines of thinking, which is cognitive, you know, intel- flexibility, you mm-hmm. know, if, to embrace failure, mm-hmm. go fast, fail cheap. You know, uh, to 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 engage the unknown, uh, mo- logic modeling, critical thinking, systems thinking, these these dynamics, and so if you have that dearth moving today, mm-hmm. and you have um, um, uh, the erosion of skills, and it's new, right? So. Mm-hmm. But people know how to teach innovation, mm-hmm. right? Other than leadership classes, entrepreneur classes, things like that. But that's not the disciplines of thinking. Philosophy is. Mm-hmm. People take philosophy. Well, so, so, so hold on. I'm not going to let you go over that one too quickly because, again, this is where I think things get lost in uh, people not really understanding the term innovation. I mean, in a way, you just, I, I, for me, what I'm picking up on is innovation is almost more akin to philosophy 
in, well, in its mindsets and it. its thinking, right? Because it's not yeah. just, you know, people are like, oh, I need to have innovation in my business. Well, what does that really mean? Like, like, and, and, and quite frankly, at the end of the day, what I'm hearing, or at least I always think about it here from you quite loud and clear here is it's not like innovation is just like, you know, finance where I'm going to bring someone in they're going to know accounting through and through. Innovation is actually more of someone in a way is kind of like a philosopher who's just thinking differently about the system, who's asking questions like why I think therefore I am. I mean, it's really, I mean, there's a really profound uh, uh, gap between what the world thinks innovation is and what you're describing, right? Yeah, you know, it's not inventing. Yeah, it's right. Outcome. Right. You know, uh, an entrepreneurial new business is an outcome. Yep. Storming or those types of techniques, you know, those are those are disciplines of deployment. Interesting. So Ben Franklin could be considered in an, I mean, he was both, but I'm going to just say for the lack yeah. of a better term right now, Ben Franklin can look at him and all that he invented as an inventor, not necessarily an innovator. But he had to have innovative capabilities. Yes. Yes. What he discovered. Because if you look at a lot of the things he did, it was the mashing of other ideas. Yes, they totally. Develop a really cool aspect of the supply chain. Mm-hmm. And you find that back in ancient China in the uh, uh, 1200 or 1000 BC that they did a certain thing. And you reapply and repurpose that to today. Mm-hmm. That's Yep. You know, how do you, you know, you know, you, your biggest impediment to being innovative is fear. Fear, mm-hmm. fear that I don't know, fear that somebody's going to make fun of me, whatever. And, and it's the unknown. You know, the energy industry and supply chain to some degree operates on scale. Mm-hmm. You're going to ripple that thing all the way down the line. And it's going to mm-hmm. not just you know, $100,000 for the mistake, but when it rolls out down downstream, it could be hundreds of millions of dollars an hour. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's, there's, some, there's some resiliency to change if it's not break, broke, don't fix it. Right. And so, but the evolution is this. Everything is in a constant state of decay. Right. Our world. We're a physical world. Our universe is in a constant state of decay. Entropy, man. In in a flow of cause and effect. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And and so managing everything the way you do today doesn't doesn't apply itself to the evolution of advancing and and, uh, and, uh, uh, the decay that's currently going on all the time. Cause and effect, cause and effect everywhere. So, you know, you you have to engage in the reality of those changes and be able to associate those to the values and the things that you're doing. And the way you do that is you stimulate your mind. And there's techniques, you know, you can actually search patents, Google the name of your idea, and patents will come up and there'll be, 60% of patents are, are expired. Mm-hmm. But so you could pull your data from there and you actually have a template to write a patent. We teach mm-hmm. how to write patents in our class. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, it's teamwork. How do you inspire? How do you communicate? 
in a manner that your idea can inspire people to give you access to resources. Too many people are so committed to the end result that they they overlook the 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 constellation of small decisions and steps that are taken to get there. Mm-hmm. Plus, we have uh, we don't have a midterm, we don't have a final, we don't have a thousand word paper, we don't have extra credit. We have templates that guide the students through systems thinking and logic model. Mm-hmm. And that's what philosophy is. It's logic model. Right. It's it's pulling things into a consensus, like a value chain. Mm-hmm. All have to sync up and make sense, and they have to be balanced. It's somewhat like a supply chain. Mm-hmm. And so, um, uh, when there's disharmony, when there's disruption, that balance begins to become awkward, and you have to go in and engage. And you engage with your mind. Mm-hmm. You change the world first with your mind. Mm-hmm. And so we 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 teach these disciplines of thinking, you know, and and and, and we teach the challenges of engaging your plan or your idea with the understanding that you don't just plan to the end result. You, you engage the value chain of concept to productization by the death threats that you will encounter. <laughs> so, and again, I'm going to be jump in here because I, there's so much to unpack in this, Dave. I, I mean, it really, I mean, this is a, it should be, well, we teach a course on this. I mean, there, there, there is a course that should be taught on this, for God's sakes. But what I'm saying is, I would venture at this point, when you get someone undergraduate or graduate, let's just put it in a time frame. Again, they're coming out of high school. Maybe they're a couple of years into undergraduate, or maybe they're in a graduate program. So they're kind of in their early to mid-20s. In a way, this course, if they enter into it, one of the things I'm hearing that needs to be done is you almost need to deconstruct a lot of the frameworks that you've been conditioned within to start to allow yourself the elasticity of thinking required for innovation. And you hit it right there. Um, I mean, I've seen hardened professionals just break down right. in the program. Uh, uh, and, as, and as flexible as my career had been, it was you know, a real challenge for me. And I still learn. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, of course. Lifelong. With this. Yeah, because it's because it's fluid. But um, here's the problem with most people. Actually, everybody in America and in the Western world has encountered this. You, me, everybody. And this is what you have to overcome. Um, your mom handed you things in your right hand. I mean, for those that are left-handed, I appreciate your grace in this dialogue. But she handed you things in your right hand. In some countries, they'll even tape the left hand so that the child can't grab anything with it, even if they're left-handed. And so then at some point, you start handing things back to your mom in your Mm -hmm. right hand. And then you're communicating, right? That's a communication. You're you're an amoeba. You're just like Mm -hmm. barely one-year-old. So your only issue is survival. Mm -hmm. And um, um, and then you, your mom points to something. That's the dog, chair, dad, mom, 
right? And then the baby starts learning to point to things that it wants, and it gets rewarded for that. It's all with the right hand. And then at some point, they learn words. And then words starts giving construct to cognitive thought, right? I mean, the book on Helen Keller was amazing, right? Oh, yep. Mess until she learned how to sign language water. Mm-hmm. And then, like, her mind just exploded. Mm-hmm. But so, imagine a child. It's just, they write a book about it. Mm-hmm. So, so uh, then they managed to parse words together into a sentence. Mm-hmm. That's a pattern. Right. And at which point, the ability to survive for the child is dependent on the management of its environment and the ability to communicate, and the ego, which is self-awareness, slides over to the left side of the brain and becomes dominant. Mm-hmm. It can control. And so then the education system relies upon that dominance to teach memorization mm-hmm. and to always be relying on what you know and what you And if it's not part of that, then, you know, you're losing control. You're losing this thing, which is part of that fear aspect. Whereas unique solutions evolve, you know, like um, a leap where like is the game. And that's what you want. You know, when you're creating an emerging market or you're competing, you're looking for that something that's going to change the rules. As Russell said, the only way to compete is to change the rules on the competition. Mm-hmm. So, that comes from the right side of your brain, which is chaos, but it's holistic. It's heuristic, but it sees things in, in the totality. Mm-hmm. So the challenge for our students uh, and professionals is the ability to let go of the rigidity of what you know, you know, the memorization, the control of patterns, right? Mm-hmm. We tend to just fall into that, and then we just keep repeating. Right. But to allow the strengths of that to be to be to to provide guardrails for the right side of the brain to just go. Mm-hmm. And 85 uh, percent of the market is right is left brain oriented. Mm-hmm. Right. So when you're confronting somebody with a great idea and your boss is no. We did that five years ago and something like that, and it really didn't work. And I don't think that's a good idea, right? They're not saying it's a bad idea, really. They're just saying, based on, you know, these, this rigidity, you know, no. But that's giving you, as a practitioner of innovation, that's just a uh, a validation of a death threat Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to be able to quantify your idea which we can quantify an idea um, um, and and then present that quantification and there's other methodologies Fermi estimating and so on because you have to understand that we are engaging with decision makers there's a decision maker along the value chain of an idea becoming a reality and those decision makers have to be addressed in, a, in, in the manner that is relevant to their understanding. And most often, it might be a finance person that is heavy left brain, 
or risk avoidance, and you've got to be able to prove the ability of your idea in a quantifiable, systematic manner that reduces a significant amount of that threat, and you should be building, focusing on productized prototyping your best practices in a, in, a, in a scenario manner that allows you to prove it out before it becomes you know, you know, in place with major investments. That's fail fast, fail cheap. Mm-hmm. And you get these cycles of failure. So you plan for your idea to fail. Mm-hmm. And then what you're going to do about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then you un- then then you foresight the value chain of decision makers or situations or the market or it could be the user uh, as you as you develop your idea, we tell students that simply because they got it wrong is only pro- prototyping their thought. Right, right. They have to they have to pivot. The U.S. military looked at our program and said they've never seen anything like it, um, um, because they recognize that the uh, the uh, the theater is is shifting and evolving. Right, and. And, and so these are some of the core dynamics, right, of, 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 of innovation, which is everything before you get to the business idea or before you develop that business, right? Mm-hmm. It's the skills of thinking. Edward de Bono said, you can't dig a new hole by digging the same one deeper. Mm-hmm. And so you have to be understanding that Failure doesn't mean fail. It means pivot. Mm-hmm. 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 Unless you find a death threat that's just absolutely, you know, it's done. You know, you just can't, you're just not going to make it. Okay, fine. Then you, then you, you didn't invest a ton of money in it and you fail fast, fail cheap, you move on. Right. But your objective hasn't changed or the end goal. So you just find, you know, you just work another pathway to get there. Yeah, let me let me let me jump in real quick here, Dave, because I, and, and it's not. I, I know you have time, I have time, but we try to keep the the, the episodes just for the listeners down to sub an hour. So uh, first thing I'm going to say is I knew this was going <laughs> to. I knew I was going to have to jump in because at some point I'm like we could just go for hours. So I do want to be conscious of time, kind of wind things down a little bit, but then I want to have you back because I think this conversation is fascinating. But let me let me put a finer point on a sort of a conclusion type kind of segue, which is, you know, as you look at innovation, right, and that's a hot topic right now, people are talking about innovation, hell, we talk about innovation as one of our core themes in, in, in the company I launched, right? I mean, a lot of companies are trying to use the term innovation as a central theme, but I'm not sure based on our discussion and based on your uh, kind of uh, instruction here and insights that people really understand what innovation truly is. No, they think it's a marketing terminology. And we have students coming into our class that are answering these these challenges as if it's a marketing challenge that they're going to advertise or whatever. And it says, no, 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 no. It's not about marketing. Mm-hmm. It's about the disciplines of your thought. Mm-hmm. You develop that. How do you analyze things um, um, for what they are? And and you know what's what's interesting? As I mentioned this about the evolution of the marketplace and the workforce, right? All of this that I previously described is occurring and it's fluid. And yet 5.0 is four or five years away. Right. And 
happening now. But you know, talking about the metaverse, right? So we have a workforce that has a gap, chain in all aspects, that uh, these, these new generations are engaging in problems, well, is engaging a world that they haven't really got a lot of experience in, and they're going to be addressing problems that they've never experienced before, and they're going to have solutions, this waterfall of solutions that will be um, inundating the workforce that they've never experienced or had any any understanding of, which is going to create new problems and new policies and new activities that are unknown, that is going to create disruption that nobody has experience in. And then it's going to be cyclical. It's a cyclical conundrum. Mm-hmm. And we are not ready for this. Right, right, right. Well, let me, okay, so, so I, I'm sorry, because this is, now we're going to, we're going to bleed in, but, but I'm going to, because I can't let this one go. But when you say that, when you say that we're not ready for this, and, and I'm going to sort of expand that, because again, you're, I think, again, system-wide, we're looking at humanity, right? And humanity's ability to accept innovation as it comes, right? And as a global group of things that are ever growing and expanding, you know, his, his, and you, you also said it earlier, like 80, 85% remain in a left brain, non-innovative way of thinking, right? Because it's comfortable, it's safe, it's a pattern, it's known, it's not the unknown. I mean, all the things you've So, so as you look at this and as you're teaching this and you've seen this, I mean, can anybody really, are they able to become an innovative thinker? Right. Yeah. I mean, it's a right. pretty profound question here, but but and it can be but pretty controversial. Believe, but yeah, yeah. We believe uh, to the Innovation Engineering Institute. We believe anybody can be trained to be innovation. Okay. Be innovative. It, anybody. It's like dribbling a basketball. Right. You hand somebody a basketball, they're going to be miserable. But they keep dribbling the basketball, which is what our program does. You, the brain eventually through these systems that they go through over and over and over becomes comfortable with the of the right side blending with the the boundaries and and the um, the attributes of the left mm-hmm. so the idea is to have a more balanced brain and a balanced brain is 60 40 percent yep. left brain 40 percent right brain and um, uh, once you once that occurs, the students just zoom right through it. We get these uh, messages that, like, this has changed my life. I'm thinking differently. I'm coming up with ideas I've never thought of before. Yeah. Uh, they're just throwing that out there um, uh, unsolicited. Uh, they're saying, you know, I'm going to start a business. And um, um, these students, when they graduate, have this portal that's rich in tris. You know, Triz, Poe, uh, Monte Carlo calculator that pr- projects five-year sales growth, um, all these different tools mm-hmm. for two years. So they graduate mm-hmm. just with the mental capacity and the disciplines to deploy it, but they have this toolkit that nobody has that mm-hmm. they engage when they first uh, start working for a company. And they're like five years down the road on the first several months of their deploy. Uh, this is this is this is a very important issue for us. 
uh, certainly uh, in America, because other countries have figured it out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One. And uh, well, I, okay, so I'm not going to let you go on that one because I, I, I have, a, I have a, a reaction to that one. I, I, I think China. Well, okay, oh, let me re-ask the question because you mentioned China has figured it out. Well, I would suggest that China has a certain mindset. Are they innovative though, or are they really good at at, at taking innovations and then using them to their advantage? Right, like like uh, both probably. Uh, yeah. I certainly know the latter. Yeah, uh, yeah, um, but. Um, if you look at where they've invested their money in research, um, Americans, even though we do applied research, the, the basis and the dominance of our academics is empirical. Yep. And then it's kind of reliant upon industry to figure out what to do with it. Yep. And where China and other organizations uh, or countries uh, are investing in what's called experiential or experimental. Mm-hmm or applied research where mm-hmm. they're seeing the dynamics of what other people are doing because it's all footprints, right? And they're right. Up, up in the web, up right. in the cloud, you know, because one thing academia does really well, they publish. Yeah. Yeah. And so they're taking that and applying it in real world scenarios. And as they're doing that, they're also educating a workforce mm-hmm. in that applied activity and if you look at where their money has been invested over the past five, 10 years, it's like, you know, doubling every year for over 10 years in the amount of money they're putting into experiential research. And mm-hmm. um, uh, meanwhile, right, uh, we have the world, but in particular, you know, um, a business mm-hmm. Uh, we feel that we have a cause to bring this dynamic, this subject, in a manner to start emboldening mm-hmm. the workforce to prepare it. Because as I mentioned, what's going to happen with Industry 5.0, in a conversation I had at a conference with a bunch of technology companies and energy companies, you know, we pointed out this, and then, you know, the retirement age and so on. Uh, the conclusion was, and they really freaked out over this. I mean, you could visibly see people move and react to it. Technology companies do what they do best. They create and compete by developing the new greatest thing that does the dynamic and so on. And they have ways to force distribute that technology, whether the customer wants it or not. Their competition will will impose itself on on. on on the supply chain and industry. In the course of doing so, they don't have a workforce capable of scaling it beyond its initial introduction. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's serious. You know, oh, there's yeah. artificial intelligence at the wellhead and mm-hmm. it's developing so many questions that they don't even have answers for. Right. Because right. they don't even know what questions to ask. But therein lies part of the innovators. I'm going to go back to uh, what's his face's book, Dilemma, which is a little bit of a riff on his thesis, which is what you just described, which is we get to a point where innovation starts happening. It happens in an even more rapid clip where now uncertainty is just a daily fact of life, 
right? And in fact, yeah. you are innovating so rapidly that there is no longer, you know, status right. quo kind of stuff. And that's, right. we can't even, I mean, that you want to talk about innovation, people can't even think of a world like that because we've been trying, we've been spending all of our 100,000 years of trying to organize into a more systematic, repeatable process. Well, that's contrary to innovation, which is breaking that down and changing that pattern and changing that process. You know, it's inherently right. kind of, you know, uh, exactly. You know, yeah. Yeah. You know, we tend to focus on teaching somebody how to do a job. Yep. And they'll teach somebody how to do a job. You know, sure. but you teach somebody the skill sets of innovation, they become mentors to the people around them. Yep. Yep. You build this perpetual movement inside right. workforce by this by this approach. Yep. And um, uh, otherwise, you become linear, which is I'm going to train all these people to do a job, and they'll do the job. But are they building a culture that's that that is pro- progressive? Right. Does it right. does it advance itself in unknown ways? Right. You know, if you ask Henry Ford, actually Henry Ford said this: If I had asked people what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse. Right. Right. You know, nobody told Steve Jobs to put a camera in a phone. Totally. Yep. Well, in fact, I'll I'll give you one that I always love, which is Alexander Graham Bell. When he invented the phonograph and listed the 10 things, use cases for that phonograph, not one of them was listening to music. Yeah. Right. It's a slightly different view of what you're describing, but, you know, it's the other side of it. Right. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Totally. I'm with you. Hey, Dave, I got to, at this point, because we're bleeding over, so I'm going to put a, put a, Pause, because I, I, I just I know I would spend the entire day with you. <laughs> so I'd love to be on a panel with you. This is a hell of a lot of fun, and I'd like to pick back up. But um, um, I do, I do. I mean, this is well. One, what an interesting path to get to where you are. Two, I do want to make a shout out that you know you're at the University of Houston. You're leading the practice in, in the area of innovation, and innovation at the end of the day is really a, it, it's embracing a a it's almost, a, again, in my words here, a philosophy that we're going to have to really begin to harness as a species moving forward better than we have historically, because we're at it where it's not just industry 5.0, Dave, it's, it's human beings are about to make the step into the space, into the universe. I mean, over the next hundred years, you're going to have human little tribes popping up on different planets. And what does that mean for us? How do we think about that? You know, what is that system involved? So it's not just technology, but it's about the whole, you know, I mean, this is sci-fi come to life and innovation is going to be at the forefront. That thinking, you know, what you're teaching at the University of Houston is going to be at the forefront of that. It has to be. Yes, absolutely. And on top of that, dare I say, the leadership of disruption. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, yes, which is a whole, I mean, trust me, there's a gazillion questions in my head right now, which is a fascinating other topic, which is, you know, you start thinking about, you know, how you move forward as a species. Well, by somewhat by definition, you're describing this earlier, not everyone can be an innovator. It doesn't mean everyone is incapable of innovation, but as a species, not everyone can be an innovator, right? They can innovatively think, potentially, but can they be on the forefront of innovation? 
I don't know. I mean, that's another part of this puzzle when you start thinking about the system again. You know, it's like, can everyone be an entrepreneur? Probably not. It doesn't work that way. Yeah. Well, there's, there's, we'll talk about that. Yeah. Right. <laughs> like I said, it's just, okay. I did. I'm going to wind up there. I'm going to hit pause. It has been, I, I, again, I, I feel almost rushed that I have to do this because we're, we're, this is the longest episode we've ever had. It's a great way to end the year after two years. But I mean, honestly, this is the first time I've actually gone over by 10 or 15 minutes and I, I can't stop. So I'm going to stop there. Awesome conversation. People can find you. Just just quick highlight on LinkedIn at the University of Houston. I mean, where are the other? Do you have your own kind of DaveCrawley.com? Uh, 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 no, I just I just do what I do. I'm yeah. I'm being blessed to be doing what I do. Uh, yep. Right. Uh, I'm at the College of Technology at the University of Houston. Right. Uh, so you can find me on the faculty. Uh, yep. So uh, um, productizing uh, partnerships. You know, commercializing. Uh, partnerships and technology. LinkedIn is probably one of the best places to find me. Yep. Yep. And Perfect. Dave Crawley, not David Crawley. Yep. Yep. And when we'll we'll put these links in the in the write up and everything else. But, okay. but uh, yeah, yeah. All that stuff's going to be there. We'll make it easy breezy. But again, Dave, uh, uh, honestly, thank you so much. I, I really, we're going to chat again. And there's there's a lot to keep going on this one. But great, great program, great story. Thank you for being on today. Well, thank you, Richard. It's a pleasure to be of service to you and, thank you. and your audience. Yeah, uh, thank you. This is Richard Donaldson. Thanks for listening. If you have any comments about the episode or topics in supply chain you'd like us to explore, we'd love to hear from you. You can reach us at supplychainnext at requis.com. And while you're at it, why not check out the Requis platform at supplychain.requis.com. Requis allows you to manage the full asset lifecycle in the cloud, collaborating with your entire value network to buy, manage, and sell your assets. Find out more at www.requis.com.